Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 21. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. The Gospel of the Lord. I want to start by thanking uh, all those who filled in for me last week. I did not intend, I did not envision being uh, sick and staying home on my second Sunday as lead pastor of this church, but that's what happened. Uh, it was clear to me that I would not be able to stand up long enough to <laughs> function here. So uh, thanks to Richard uh, who preached uh, and Sean leading some worship. I know uh, Bill Rarden. Um, led some things in the service as well, and Jerry Calandrilla taught the Sunday school class. It is good to have um, people with the gifts and, and ability and willingness to, to fill in in those areas. <clears throat> and apologies for canceling that, that song that I just canceled, but, um, you know, it, uh, I'm learning this morning the um, consequences of having had coughing fits for the better part of this past week. Uh, so <clears throat> we'll see how much of the sermon I'm able to speak through, but I, at least I don't believe myself to be contagious any longer. Um, take some drinks here, and off we go. Well, as we continue our sermon on <laughs> Luke 13, we're working through the, the book of Luke together, um, I want to talk a little bit about the kingdom of God, because that's what this text is about here. Sorry, I've got a thing in my mouth. Um, I'll get rid of it here in a minute, but, you know, the <laughs> limitations that come to us because of the fact that we are physical creatures, something I've been thinking about lately, but um, also has something to do with this passage a little bit. Well, not long after Jesus began his earthly ministry and 
Before he even called his first disciples, Jesus described his ministry in these terms. He said, I must go preach the good news of the kingdom to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus came, in his own words, to preach the good news of the kingdom. And Luke also describes the teaching of the early church in the same way. In the book of Acts, in chapter 8, we read that Philip preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. In Acts 20, Paul's farewell to the Ephesian elders, uh, which Mike preached on uh, for his farewell to us a few weeks ago, uh, Paul says that he had gone about among them proclaiming the kingdom. The very last verse in Acts shows Paul, shows Paul proclaiming the kingdom of God in Rome. So in the New Testament, Believers are transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. It's the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. We receive the kingdom. We're transferred into the kingdom. We enter the kingdom by being born again. And when Christ returns, we will inherit the kingdom in its fullness. So all of this raises the question for us, what is the kingdom of God? And there are probably as many definitions of the kingdom as there are Bible scholars who study this sort of thing. They're usually not wildly different, although they like to uh, quibble over the precise definition, but I'm just going to go with one that you may have heard. It, it ultimately comes from a scholar named Grams Goldworthy, that the kingdom is God's plate, God's people in God's place under God's rule. Uh, a few years ago, some of you went through a book by Vaughn Roberts called God's Big Picture. Uh, he adds God's blessing to this, so it's God's people under God, in God's place, under God's rule and blessing. Um, that might be redundant because God's rule is what brings the blessing, but regardless, this is really what the whole Bible is about. Adam and Eve, God's people, were placed in the garden, God's place, under his rule, but they rebelled, and so they were exiled from God's place, and they came under the curse rather than God's blessing. The story of the Old Testament is about how God's plan to restore that kingdom, his people, to his place under his blessing, how that plan unfolds. We see that in partial fulfillment in the history of Israel as they attempt to live under the rule of God's law in God's promised land. Unfortunately, we see that they also ultimately rebelled against God's law and were kicked out of God's land. Punch this thing up. I'm sorry. This is. <clears throat> Somebody told me it would be good for me to have the thing in my mouth. And she's right. It is vocal. I mean, it, it is good for me. But I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I couldn't. I just can't. I have a small mouth I, or something. Anyway, sorry. I have a big mouth. Well, okay. <coughs> She has my best interest at heart, but I just, I couldn't, I just lacked the skill. Like, was it Demosthenes, the Greek orator that had marbles in his mouth? And I, I just, I would fail that test. Um, anyway, Israel rebelled against God's law. We know this. They were kicked out of God's land. And when Jesus came preaching the good news of the kingdom, that's good news because it meant that Christ came and now fulfills what Israel could not. 
That's why it's the gospel of the kingdom that Christ says he proclaims. God's people to God's place and God's rule, God's blessing. We tend to think, what's the gospel about? We we might not think kingdom first. We might think the cross, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's true because the death and burial and resurrection of Christ, that's how God worked through Christ to to bring about the kingdom, to restore us to, to, to his rule. The kingdom is what he died and rose again to restore God's people ultimately, uh, when all is said and done, to God's place under God's rule and blessing. So why am I giving you all of this background on the kingdom? Well, like I said, today's sermon text is ultimately about the kingdom. In healing this woman, this daughter of Abraham, Jesus brought the blessing of the coming kingdom into her present life. In his debate about the healing on the Sabbath, Jesus defended true values of the kingdom, and then in his follow-up parables, he, he clarified how the kingdom was and is present as a tiny mustard seed, as invisible yeast, already here in truth, but not yet here in its fullness. It's kind of the overview of the passage. So the, the two sections of today's text are obvious, right? There's a healing on the Sabbath and a controversy that comes from that, and then there's the two parables that to follow on that. Uh, we know that the healing is also about the kingdom, not just the parables, because of the word therefore uh, in verse 18. Can I get to the, the there we go, uh, and I'll, I'll take it from here. I'll flip through here to verse 18. There we go. He said, uh, these, he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? Uh, and therefore is is really the key. It's because of the situation with the healing of this woman and the response to it that Jesus teaches about the kingdom. What Jesus did for this woman was not merely an act of compassion for an individual, but a proclamation of the kingdom of God. Another way we know that the healing is ultimately about the kingdom is that both Jesus and Luke, the narrator, don't understand this healing as just physical healing. They talk about it as an act of deliverance. Uh, Let me read some of the passage here. He was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over, could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. He laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. So it's not merely a physical condition. It is uh, a spirit that is oppressing her, not necessarily demonic possession, but demonic oppression. Uh, Again, we don't really know whether it is something that is is, is this evil spirit causing a medical condition that would show up on an MRI, or, or would it be something doctors couldn't explain. Either way, it is ultimately, in the view of Jesus and in the view of Luke, the narrator, a matter of uh, her captivity to demonic powers. And and when Jesus um, speaks in verse 16, she has been bound by Satan for 18 years, and he sets her free. So they understand this not as mere healing, but as an act of deliverance. He sets her free from her captivity to Satan. I can't help but think of Isaiah 61, which I, I preached on a few weeks ago, in which Jesus quoted at the beginning of his ministry in Luke 4. He said that he came to proclaim liberty to the captives, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. 
This is what he did for this daughter of Abraham. The fulfillment of Isaiah 61 is as real as, but greater than, mere deliverance from Babylon or Rome or any foreign empire that we might have expected. It's deliverance from the serpent who first invaded the garden and took control over mankind. And it's freedom from all the effects of our bondage to Satan, our bondage to our own sin. This isn't taking Isaiah's metaphor, a prophecy rather, as just a metaphor. Satan's rule is a real thing according to scripture. He's the prince of the power of the air according to Ephesians 2. And according to Hebrews 2, Jesus came to destroy the power of the devil who had subjected us to lifelong slavery through fear of death. So when God in the flesh touched this woman with his own hands and declared her to be free, he overthrew the enemy's rule over her life and over her body. And when he touched her, she came into contact with the kingdom of God, which was present in Christ. When he declared her to be free, that was the king issuing her proclamation of emancipation. And the rulers of the synagogue did not like it. In particular, the head ruler didn't see the deliverance from Satan that was really going on. What they saw was just a physical healing, and they judged it to be unlawful work to take place on the Sabbath. According to the law of Moses, work was forbidden on the Sabbath, uh, the seventh day of the week, also known as Saturday. It's, it's one of the Ten Commandments, number four or number three, depending on how you count those. Uh, it's also called a sign of the covenant between God and his people Israel. So it's pretty important. And because it's important and because they were misguided in their thinking, the Jewish rabbis came up with a number of rules and regulations uh, of their own in order to make sure that no one slipped up and did any illicit work on the Sabbath. <coughs> to be fair, it can get complicated to think about what counts as work and what doesn't. So they decided that it doesn't count as work to untie a cow and lead it to water or to tie it back up so it doesn't water off unless there happened to be any burden on the cow's back and then the cow would be doing work while you lead it to the water because it's carrying a load. I also believe that uh, on the Sabbath you could lead a cow to water but you couldn't make it drink. Um, Anyway, the the leader of the synagogue is indignant at this rank rule-breaking in his eyes. Uh, He is indignant, the text says, which if you go to the Greek means that he's as mad as the snake that married the garden hose. Uh, he is, uh, that's not actually in the Greek, but anyway, he's really mad is the point. He's, he is in fact so irate, so furious, so utterly outraged that he makes a public service announcement. It says in verse 14, the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. You know, this guy's leadership here is just plain pathetic, and I'm sure that I've done the same thing. Uh, You've got an issue with someone, and it just seems easier rather than take it up with them. Let's make a diplomatically passive-aggressive public service announcement about it. Not only does he lack the courage to take it up with Jesus, he throws the people under the bus, specifically the people who need healing. They're the problem coming to be healed on the Sabbath. I mean, it doesn't even make sense. This poor woman didn't come up and ask to be healed. 
she was just standing there, and Jesus called her out and, and, and healed her, but she gets the blame for being healed. Now, there are six days a week when it's okay for you to come here for healing. Uh, Thabiti Anyabwile, in his commentary on Luke, points out that the synagogue leader says this as if he himself were healing people on all those six days of the week, right? I'm, I'm sure that miracles like this were happening all the time, that this synagogue leader cared so much the other six days of the week. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, Jesus points out the hypocrisy of this attitude as we've read. You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed on the Sabbath day? It's hypocritical because they made exceptions to care for their livestock, but not to love their human neighbor. They end up treating cows and donkeys better than this precious daughter of Abraham, who has been suffering for almost two decades. And, and this isn't about, you know, in... in in their making this provision for caring for livestock, uh, it's not about animal rights. As far as we know, PETA doesn't have roots in Second Temple Judaism. I, I just think about what went on in the temple. You know, they, it's hard to see them as animal lovers. There's no rabbinic society for the prevention of cruelty to animals until we bleed them and burn them. In livestock, in any culture, it, it's valuable because it's tied to your own livelihood. Oxen and donkeys are beasts of burden. They're needed for labor, for transportation. You want to keep them healthy. They need water every day. That's why we make a provision for that, not because we just love our snuggly donkey. A modern equivalent might be to say that you're allowed to put your electric car on the charger on Sundays. I don't know. I was trying to think of something. But it's really about your own needs in a way. So the upshot is that animals are treated better than human beings because we care more about our own property than about people. They're making exceptions for essentially their own needs, but not the needs of others. If I have a need, it's legitimate. If it's someone else's need, it can wait. And they have missed what the Sabbath is really about to begin with. There's a, a deeper issue here. And notice that Jesus doesn't argue people should get the same exception as oxen. He's not arguing that healing on the Sabbath is merely permissible. His argument is that it is appropriate. This is the kind of thing that should happen on the Sabbath. Ought not this woman be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? It's not an exception. It's not that the principle of Sabbath rest is overridden by a higher principle like love your neighbor or something. No, his argument is that delivering this woman from Satan's oppression on the Sabbath is in step with the meaning of the Sabbath. It might even be stronger because verse 16 could be translated, isn't it necessary that this woman be loosed on the Sabbath? It is in keeping with the meaning of the Sabbath, possibly even required to heal her on the Sabbath. So let's review a little bit of the Sabbath. Um, soon after God had led Israel out of Egypt, he instructed them to rest on the seventh day, the Sabbath Day. There actually isn't a command. Uh, we don't have any evidence of, of people keeping the Sabbath, by the way, until uh, after the Exodus. And Exodus 20 tells us that this was in part a reminder of God's rest on the seventh day after he created the heavens and the earth. Deuteronomy 5 
as Moses reminds Israel of the Ten Commandments, he explains it this way. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God has brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So Sabbath for your whole family. Make a note of this. Sabbath for you, Sabbath for your cow, Sabbath for your servants, because it's a reminder of God's deliverance. You are a captive. You are a slave in Egypt, and God has set you free. This fits with the spirit of the explanation in Exodus 20 as well, that, that Sabbath rest points to God's rest from creation. God didn't rest because he was tired, and certainly he wasn't a slave, but he rested because the work was complete, because the world was as it should be. People were living in his place, under his rule, under his blessing. So the Sabbath is a very serious command under the law, but it's also a gift. It's a gift of resting and receiving the provision, the blessing of God, remembering the freedom, and that's why it's in keeping with the Sabbath for this woman to be set free. That's what the Sabbath is all about, Charlie Brown. Um, Halloween's over, so you will get a Charlie Brown Christmas reference every sermon between now and Christmas. I make no apologies. That's why it's not merely permitted, but fitting or even required to save, to deliver this woman from Satan's oppression on the Sabbath. It's all about deliverance from slavery. Christ manifested that deliverance in the life of a precious daughter of Abraham. The crooked was made straight. She glorified God. What does all that tell us about the kingdom, though, that we can apply today? Well, it does raise questions about how Christians should apply the Sabbath commands today, and I don't want to get into all the different views, Christian Sabbath versus the Lord's Day observance. It's a fun topic. I actually do want to get into it, but I just don't, you don't want to be here for several hours, and I don't know if I can talk long enough to do that and actually talk about the main point of the text. Uh, just to be clear, um, we're not here to judge anyone who does uh, need to work on Sundays or to judge anyone who observes it as a day of rest. I have thoughts, but I, I think we can disagree on how the Sabbath applies today. But the main point of the text here is to show us what the kingdom of God is like. It's a place of deliverance from slavery. We are free people in the kingdom of God. It seems odd to us as Americans to think, how can we be free if there is a king ruling over us because of, you know, our understanding of our own national history and how we think of freedom in the, the civil sphere, and I have no issue with how our, our freedoms work in the civil sphere, but freedom in scripture doesn't mean that we have no king and we can do whatever we want. Um, freedom in the Bible means freedom, especially from a malicious authority, freedom from slavery, freedom from oppression that, that keeps you down, keeps you from being who you are meant to be. You're serving their purposes to your own detriment. God's kingdom, God's rule over us, sets us free because God's rule for us is good for us. 
It restores us to what we are meant to be. Our king came to set us free. So he sets us free from slavery to the things in our lives that are destroying us. Sets us free, first and foremost, from from our own sin. But he sets us free from the reign of Satan. He will even deliver us from the grave itself. And meanwhile, in the course of this life, even the commands of God are given to guide us toward really our own fulfillment, what is best for us. Just like the loving commands of a good parent are given to nurture maturity in the child. We're not just trying to get our our kids to serve our our whim and do all the work for us, although that would be kind of nice, but um, no, we give them instruction and rules and commands to keep them safe and to help them grow into the kind of mature people that we want them to become. The saving rule of God in Christ Jesus is like that. He has set us free already and is continually working in us. Our king has won the victory for us already and continues to work in us by his word, molding and shaping us, making straight what is, what is crooked, bringing us in line with the good and perfect will of God, which is the same thing as making us into who we were really meant to be, who we were really longing to be, even if we don't fully understand it. Um, that, that's, that's what it means to be part of the kingdom. And he continues this work until we are finally set free from the grave. If the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. So that's what the kingdom is like, and if it has come, that might raise the question, why aren't we immediately free now from everything that binds us in this life? Jesus set her free from her disability. Uh, Should we expect to be set free from all disease here and now? Well, the parable Jesus tells, the two of them, give us some helpful guidance on that question. Again, these are in response to the reaction to the miracles. Uh, the, the, the Pharisee types uh, are, are deeply ashamed at Jesus' response, they're humiliated. Other people, are, the crowds, are uh, glorifying, uh, rejoicing at least. They rejoice to see what Jesus was doing. Maybe they recognized God's power. Or maybe they were just impressed with the miracles themselves. Uh, I'm not sure, actually. It's kind of hard to tell. Uh, We do know that people were looking for the kingdom to come and immediately take over the world. And so as the crowd goes wild, Jesus tells this parable, which I think is helpful clarification for them and for us. He said, what is the kingdom of God like and to what shall I compare it? It is like, (laughs) excuse me, a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches This isn't the only time Jesus uses mustard seed as illustrations. Uh, I guess he just really liked mustard. Uh, So take that, my kids. Uh, Mustard is good. Uh, But the way he uses the idea here makes me think of Jack and the Beanstalk a little bit. A guy throws a tiny seed in his garden and it grows into something unexpectedly huge. Uh, I think this is an abnormally large mustard plant. Uh, that can be called a tree and have multiple birds nesting in its branches. The big point here is the contrast between the beginning and the end of the kingdom. It will be like a towering tree that provides shelter to all who flock to it. This is guaranteed, 
because the seed is planted. That tree is present, even if it is present in seed form only. But the tree has been planted, and it is growing. The other parable is similar. It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it all was leavened. Again, the contrast is in between how it begins and how it ends, uh, how it started and how it's, it's, it's going to end up. Uh, instead of an image of something visible but small and underestimated, though, we have an image of something that ends up invisible and yet inevitable. Uh, usually, leaven is a negative in image in Scripture, but not in this case. It's a positive. Uh, you take a tiny bit of yeast. At that time, it would have been something more like a blob of sourdough starter or something, not so much an envelope of you know, red star, active dry, or whatever. But you, you work that tiny amount of leaven into three measures of flour, which it turns out to be about 50 pounds of flour, and it seems like a drop in the bucket. You mix it in and it disappears. It seems like this little bit of leaven is just overwhelmed by all this uh, unleavened nature of, of flour. 50 pounds, by the way, is a lot of flour. I know because I've ordered 50 pounds of flour before. Um, got into baking at one point, but like I needed two big five-gallon buckets to store it all. I am really impressed, by the way, with the woman in this parable who is able to knead all of this dough. That is a massive... I mean, she had to have arms like tree trunks, but... Um, the, it's, it's a tiny bit of leaven and a massive amount of dough, but the kingdom is definitely there. Yeah, it, it's going to be leavened dough now. Uh, you won't see the changes right away, and yet the kingdom's presence is there at work, changing everything. The, the die is cast. There's no going back now. If you wanted unleavened bread, too bad. You can see how this fits with Luke's whole, whole purpose in writing. He wanted to give the reader's certainty concerning the things he was taught, or they were taught back in Luke chapter 1. That tells us so helpfully by his writing. And that makes sense, because the church was small, despised in the eyes of the world, did not look impressive, the kingdom didn't burst on the scene with guns blazing to take over the world. That's not how the kingdom came. The kingdom came as something small and lowly, something unexpected. It's not yet here in its fullness, but it is nevertheless here in truth. As we think about all the, the other things, like, you know, why, why aren't I immediately healed from, from this disease like Jesus healed that woman? Well, uh, because that's not how the kingdom comes. It's, it's, a, it's a mustard seed, and yet in that mustard seed, we possess now um, the power of God that will ultimately undo all of those things. Because the kingdom has come in truth, believers can say with John that this world is passing away. We can say with Paul that God has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in Christ. And how did he triumph over them? At the cross. To the eyes of the world, the cross is about making someone as small as you possibly can putting them to extreme shame, treating them as something less than human, slowly torturing to death while people laugh at him or gawk at him like he's a circus sideshow, making him out to be just a, a complete worm. It's about making someone small. They shoved a crown of thorns into his scalp. 
They dressed him in a royal purple robe and then tore that robe off of his bleeding flesh. They laughed as they knelt before him in mockery of his claim to be the king. The sign on his cross read King of the Jews to ridicule both him and the Jews. Unknown to them, he was King of the Jews and is King of the Jews, not only of the Jews, but he's Lord of all creation. He's King of kings and Lord of lords, and it is precisely by enduring those things that our King has secured deliverance from the domain of darkness and our entry into his own kingdom. Do you see it? The small, the despised, the lowly is the triumph of God's kingdom in Christ Jesus. Who would have guessed that being executed as an enemy of the state is precisely how he purchased for us the kingdom that will one day fill this entire world? We know that his death accomplishes all of this because he is no longer dead. He is risen. He is seated on the throne now. And he reigns. So still today, the kingdom is a mustard seed. You and I don't enter the kingdom by great deeds of courage and valor that prove our worth. We don't even enter by small deeds that prove we're trying. We enter by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We just look to what Jesus has done for us, and we enter the kingdom of God. That's not impressive to the eyes of the world. You just believe the faith uh, that God plants in the heart of an individual is the kingdom of God in Christ Jesus bursting into the scene. Not impressive to the world, but it makes all the difference in our lives. We just look to what Christ has done for us, and we encourage others to do the same. That is our role as God works through us for his kingdom. We proclaim the gospel of the king. And so the kingdom today still looks much like it did that Sabbath day in Luke chapter 13. Precious soul set free from captivity by the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, we pray for your kingdom to come as our king instructed us to do. We thank you that in Christ the kingdom has come. We thank you that the king is reigning, that God in the flesh is seated on the throne. And we thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your only son to die for us, to redeem us, to make us a kingdom, to make us your people, to make us citizens in this wonderful kingdom of God, this place of joy and freedom, deliverance. We confess we did not deserve any of this. We had rebelled against your rule and deserved only condemnation and death, but you are a God of grace and mercy. You have delivered us and you will deliver us. 
from everything that binds us, everything that would destroy us, everything that keeps us from being the people, the men and women that you have made us to be, everything that ultimately, though we would turn to it for for joy and fulfillment, uh, it would destroy us, rob us of our joy, rob us of life itself. We pray for your kingdom to come, and we pray that as we go through this life with that prayer on our lips, that you would give us eyes of faith to see the leaven and to see the mustard seed that is here even now. Help us to see your kingdom, though we know it's here in truth but not in fullness. Help us to see uh, and help us to rejoice in the freedom that you have given us in Christ Jesus our Lord. We ask these things in his name. Amen.